Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. A couple of years before all of this happened, I was asked by my leadership to remove the word damn from an ad because it was too vulgar mm-hmm. and too edgy. And now fast forward, and we're putting effing cooch on our yeah. product packaging. I mean, like that kind of a journey. Yes, it does take time, but I think that the ability for us to show and demonstrate real business results to the broader leadership team to demonstrate that this was a positive thing for our brand and for our business was really imperative for them to come along that journey with us. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is So Young Kang, the chief marketing officer of EOS Products, the beauty brand famous for its colorful spherical packaging and its enthusiastic fan base. EOS, which is an acronym for Evolution of Smooth, is privately held and was founded by Jonathan Teller, Sanjeev Mehra, and Craig Dubitsky in 2006. Key product categories include lip balm, skincare, and shaving cream. My guest So Young joined EOS in 2018. Before that, she worked at Bath & Body Works, Victoria's Secret, and the Boston Consulting Group, and is currently serving on the board of directors at Bob's Discount Furniture. So Young is a highly awarded CMO. She has been named an Adweek brand genius, Forbes most entrepreneurial CMO, and a business insider most innovative CMO. So Young was born in Korea. Her parents emigrated to the US when she was two years old. She went on to study architecture at MIT before earning an MBA at Wharton, where she was a Fulbright scholar. This is my conversation with a CMO who believes marketing should be like talking to a friend. We recorded this face-to-face conversation at the Can Lions International Festival of Creativity. Here's So Young. Welcome, So Young, to the CMO Podcast. It's always sunny in Cannes, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Would you agree with that statement? I would agree with that. It looks like you've done your homework. I have done my homework. <laughs> you grew up in Philadelphia. I did. I grew up near Philadelphia. My parents met in Philly. I have a lot of family in Philadelphia, so I love having someone from Philly on the show. Well, I love being someone from Philly. I think it gives me a certain level of grit. That's that's a good word for the town. 
So what do you love about Philadelphia? What do you miss? Oh, I mean, I miss my family. I have my, my mother still lives yeah. there and all of the folks that I grew up with as, as a child. And it's, it's interesting. I've been reflecting a lot about my childhood and how it's sort of shaped me to be who I am. And I don't think I knew that at the time. So this is another topic that maybe we can talk about. Yeah. But I, I think really fondly, fondly back as somebody who was growing up in the Korean American community mm-hmm. in like the late 70s and 80s yeah. in Philadelphia. And it was really strong and it was very tight knit. And I miss that. How do you think that experience shaped you as the leader you are today? I mean, those early experiences are very fundamental, right? They are. I really believe that, actually. I think that um, one of the things that I've been reflecting on lately is how the things that I used to consider my unusual characteristic, let's say like my background, Mm -hmm. growing up in an immigrant family, growing up um, with modest means, Mm -hmm. and growing up in, you know, cultural circumstances that are really different than the, the kind of like conventional, typical kind of like mainstream household, although I don't think there's even that anymore no, today no. in today's America. But I think about how that's really shaped me to be a keen observer of human behavior. I'm somebody who really likes to assess and decode and deconstruct social norms, cultural trends. Mm-hmm. And I'm also somebody who I think um, because my background is less conventional, tends to be maybe a little bit more um, unconventional in my thinking. And I bring that into my work. And as a leader in particular, I like to think that I think about talent in an unconventional way. And I like to bring in people into the team who have very different sets of lived experiences as well. Mm -hmm. What brought your parents to Philadelphia? You were young, right? I was. I immigrated when I was two. Economic opportunity. Both of my families grew up in post-war Korea and I was born there. And, uh, you know, they were here to seek a better life for themselves, but mostly for their children. And they really succeeded at that. And I I think a lot about how, no matter how brave I think I am, can you imagine being an adult with a toddler moving to a country where you don't speak a word of the language in order to seek a better future for your children? I mean, that's bravery right there. Yeah, it's courageous. It's bravery. It's risky. Yeah. It's all those things. So I, I, I too admire it. My family came over way before that. They fled Ireland during the, um, you know, the famine. Yeah, yeah. So my family moved to Philly following relatives, I think, in the mid-1800s. That's a great American story, right? It is. They all are. Yeah. Yeah, they all are. So we're in Cannes, and you're active this week. You're on panels. <laughs> I was following you. You've been on multiple panels, and you just got a great award, right? Yeah. Can you speak to that? Sure. I was just, I, this, I, I honestly did not ever expect that this would happen to me, but I was just um, honored as being one of the Adweek brand geniuses this That's year. Huge. And that is a big word, genius. I think uh, all of those of us who are on the list are, you know, I think we're all in alignment that we, none of us would have considered ourselves geniuses. Um, but I think that the genius really comes through in the collaborative work that we've all collectively put out there into the world that, um, you know, I, I hope is changing the landscape in the face of our industry mm-hmm. um, and helping us be more brave, more creative, but also more impactful so that the work is truly driving the business. So what are you looking forward to this week most? So this week, I did your, not think I was coming. It's my second time here. Last year was your first time. Yeah. And I thought last year would be my first and only time. But, mm. you know, when you get a Brand Genius Award, you just you got you to go, go pick it up. <laughs> so so I decided to come. And, and I'm so glad that I did because I think that the thing that I find the most magical about Cannes, all two times I've been here, are the sort of serendipitous moments when you connect with people and, and make a connection at a personal level. But sometimes also for things that can lead to great professional 
projects as well in the future. And so that's what I'm really looking forward to the most. I, I love all the great content. And I think it's incredible how much um, people invest in bringing all of the thought leadership and the examples of all the great work that we do to this incredible festival. But most importantly, the thing that you can only do on the ground in person is connect with people. Yeah, that's it. That's what it's about. That's the only place in the world where we all come together to around the world. Global. Yeah. I was here my first time 20 years ago this summer wow. when I brought P&G for the first time. So it was 2003. And I met Dan Wyden. And I asked him to come speak to our group that was here. We were not working with Wyden and Kennedy at the time. Mm -hmm. We decided to try it. So we had a couple pilot brands. And look at what happened since then, right? They've done it's the amazing. Olympics for P&G. So they've been a really, really big part of the culture there. So that this is what happens in Cannes. That's the magic. Yeah. It is the magic, the serendipity, and, and looking outside your normal partners, normal circles. I mean, it's a good time to get together with your partners as well, but also to yeah. talk to some people who work differently from you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last year was your first time you had a piece of work that won just about every <laughs> award. And I think that was pure creativity Yeah. in, in, in what your company, your team did with that. So it's user-generated content mm -hmm. that went onto a package and became sort of a statement about your culture. So could you talk to us a bit about that piece of work, how it happened, sure. what your team did with it, how fast they acted, mm -hmm. the impact on your culture at large, and how you think about it a year later? So what happened was, you know, as you mentioned, it was user-generated content. It was not solicited. Um, it was not expected by any means. And there was a, um, a young woman who posted a TikTok about how she uses the EOS shave cream, which, by the way, was an under-the-radar product yep. that we were not actively marketing for, and how she uses it to shave her private parts. But she did not use those words. She said that it was the secret to how to bless your effing cooch. <laughs> and that's not where it stops, because she went into unbelievable and hilarious and NSFW detail about how she uses this exact product to shave her private parts. And it was incredible. I mean, the the TikTok went viral immediately. We were getting tagged in the in mm -hmm. in it immediately. We wanted to reach out to her so that we could work with her immediately. But the problem is that she was getting um, messaged so often she wasn't responding to us. So we thought, okay, so how do we get a TikToker's attention? Well, you duet them. That's how you get on their radar. This is a this is a form of communication on TikTok. Sure. How people are talking to each other, right? And so we decided that we were going to create a product. And if she worked with us, great. If she didn't work with us, like the project would have to get scrapped, but that we were going to create a product that took her exact words, bless your effing cooch, and her exact instructions, first you shave down, then you shave mm -hmm. to the side, then you shave the other, uh, the whole thing, and so put how it on that our idea, product. That, how did that happen, that idea? Was it someone oh. in your team that came forward or... Your agency? So it was our agency. So th this is the way I think the, you know, talking about magic and serendipity, I think sometimes you don't know what you can do unless you ask the questions, right? And for us, because we um, were seeing this thing go viral, but she wasn't responding to us, we, we reached out our, to our agency and we said, we have to reach her. How can we reach her? And they came back in 12 hours with this idea. Um, so I think we reached out to them um, on a Tuesday night. We met on Wednesday morning, and we started producing all the product on Wednesday night. I had mechanical drawings going out. I had production starting on Wednesday night. It was wow. wild. And we hoped, um, you know, because we were leaning into this thing without knowing whether we were going to sec secure a partnership mm -hmm. with her and, and frankly get, you know, have permission to use her intellectual property, which are her words. But she responded via the duet. Like I said, this is how Gen Z is talking to each other on TikTok. She responded um, and we were able to strike a deal with her that weekend. 
And then we released our production and, and, and we were off and running. Um, our business, which was already um, starting to see a climb from the viral yeah. UGC, basically kept climbing, climbing, climbing and stayed elevated for several months. We doubled our business essentially in those few months. We have since then maintained um, our elevated level of sales. I think in the first year we had something like it was close to 250 basis points of market share growth in that first year after mm -hmm. that campaign. By the second year, continuing on this continued trend of real talk, authenticity, leaning into and partnering with creators to bring their own personal style of communication and education to the consumer, and frankly, just not taking ourselves too seriously yeah. and speaking to a usage occasion that maybe not other brands were talking about. We found that our business has continued to skyrocket and grow. That's fantastic. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So the larger impact on your culture from that that unbelievable piece of work and the application of it and the relationship with your agency. As you look at it a year later, what parts of that have carried forward? You're saying not take yourself too seriously, yeah. but does it, has it affected how you work and how you ideate? Tell, tell us Absolutely. more about that. Absolutely. So what I will say is that um, while we've always been a brand in our history, in our original history that leaned into, um, you know, social first influencer marketing and um, really speaking directly with the young consumer, I think that the piece that didn't click until this all happened was how different young consumers were today versus in the earlier years of, mm -hmm. of the brand journey. And I think that this notion of... And the brand started in what, 2007 or so? 2009 was the first year that we launched product. Okay. I think it, it. it was an incubator before that. Mm -hmm. Before all of this happened, I think we were maybe a little bit safer in the way that we were speaking to our consumers. We were still really big um, believers in social and mm -hmm. TikTok in particular and creator marketing. But I think that our approach was perhaps a little bit more polite and um, and sort of shying away from guess what? People actually talk to each other this way. This is not about a brand bringing, you know, excessively vulgar language mm -hmm. into the into the dialogue. It's actually about talking to people the way people talk to each other. And that's really fundamentally changed our, our brand voice and the way that we approach creative and how brave we can be, how, um, how much risk we can take on. And that was a really important journey, not only for our marketing team, but for our broader organization at large. I, I, I sometimes, once in a while, I'll tell this story, I'll tell you this story, but a couple of years before all of this happened, I was asked by my uh, leadership to remove the word damn 
from an ad because it was too vulgar Mm -hmm. and too edgy. And now fast forward and we're putting effing cooch on our product packaging. I mean, like that kind of a journey. Yes, it does take time, but I think that the ability for us to show and demonstrate real business results to the broader leadership team, to demonstrate that this was a positive thing for our brand and for our business was really imperative for them to come along that journey with us. How do you capture so that your entire organization understands, including your leadership team, the kind of brand that you are trying to build? Yeah. You know, the partnership with your your consumers and your agency. Do you have a brand book? Do you have a statement of values? What do you use to keep everyone sort of understanding it and innovating based on that? So we do have um, brand guidelines, brand book and all of that. What I will say is that we've evolved so rapidly in the past 18 months that I feel like it's been a bit of a moving target. And I think that the best way for marketers to make sure that they're staying in lockstep with their broader team is to just ensure you're being incredibly transparent about the kind of work you're doing, when you're doing it, and why you're doing it. And I think that while I, while everyone loves a good success story, I think that includes sometimes sharing some of the places where you don't succeed. Sure. And so if you, if you do something and it doesn't land right, you should share that with your leadership team. They need to be able to trust you as the steward of the brand and to ensure that you are being upfront and honest with them and clear with them about where you're, the journey that you're taking the this brand on. And I think that the work itself does more, frankly, than our, you know, possibly outdated brand book mm-hmm. does. Sure, sure. You have a few, as I was doing my homework on you, a few, I don't know, life or business philosophies I want to interrogate a little okay. bit. You've already <laughs> raised uh, raised them in a way, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper. And the first one is that this idea of observing, assessing, recoding, and reconstructing. Mm-hmm. I've heard you use that. You've already used it in this interview a bit. Could you little talk a bit more about that, how you came to that, Mm. and how you apply it in how you work on your brand and with your teams. So um, thank you for bringing that up, because what I will say is that that one goes all the way back, as many things do, to my childhood. As an immigrant um, in this country, I immigrated when I was two, but I actually didn't speak English until I entered into public school. Um, So, you know, kindergarten. Mm -hmm. I have lived a journey of always sort of being on the outside looking in. And I think that when you're always on the outside looking in, you can either sort of like lean into it and figure out how to survive, or actually most of us just figure out how to survive. I don't think there's another path. But, you know, for me, the survival mechanism that I really developed was being a really keen observer, being a really keen analyst to be able to kind of see, okay, so this is why this person does this. And then if I do something, if I say something this way, they will respond positively Mm -hmm. to me. And then over time, you just get so good at it that it it becomes a part of who you are. And I think that it's at its core, it's essentially pattern recognition. And I think pattern recognition is something that has been an incredibly important asset to me throughout my career, whatever the job has been, because I haven't been a marketer my whole career. In fact, actually, this is my first and only real marketing job that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And prior to this, I've had other kind of commercial roles. Yep. But pattern recognition is always good because if you can immediately enter into an amorphous, chaotic environment and add structure to the chaos and then understand how you can move on from there, you become an incredibly valuable asset. No matter matter what the job is, no matter what the company is, that's an incredibly valuable thing to, to do. Now, the difference in marketing is now you have to remix. You're not just doing pattern recognition and repeating because that doesn't work in the world of marketing. You have to remix. You have to come up with something fresh. You have to come up with something different. And that's what's so fun about this job and why I think it's the ultimate, ultimate embodiment of this philosophy that I've had since I was you know, a child. 
Do you train this with your people or is it something that you think about more personally and how you look at things and how you lead? I wish I could say that I had an official training. I think my people um, hopefully would say that it's very much embedded in the way that I direct the work and the way that I lead the work. Um, I'm always looking for the what's next. So there's a lot of sort of, you know, hey, we just completed a project. Mm-hmm. Let's hindsight what worked. What, let's hindsight what didn't work. Let's break it down into its like core structure. And now what are we going to change about it the next time? And to me, that's like the fun part. It's the remixing. I, the next one I want you to talk about is this quote I read where you said you've st- you spent 10 years learning how to do strategic thinking and strategy. And you've spent 10 years plus, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. in learning how to understand a brand story and create a brand story. So could you talk a bit about that as your evolution as as a leader? I know you started your career early in consulting, right? I did. I was a management consultant Mm -hmm. um, or even an in-house strategist um, for the first 10 years of my career. And I think that across industries, across disciplines, like everything from like operational efficiency to procurement strategies, very different than what I do in the day-to-day right now. But I think that what it did was it really sharpened my ability to um, you know, do what I just said, which is like get the lay of the land and create order out of chaos. And that's just fundamentally what the great skill and the great training ground of a, being a consultant is. And then going from there and kind of prioritizing the work and figuring out where to go next. The next sort of you know 10 plus years of my career were spent in retail. And the thing that I love about retail, even though I'm not in retail specifically now, is that there is no place where you, I think, get con- closer to your consumer then in retail more broadly, but in specifically where I was, you know, the company that I worked at, where the notion of knowing your customer like your best friend was actually a mantra from the leadership level top down. And where we didn't do customer insight, we did customer intimacy because it was really about understanding what your consumer customer would know and want and think before even they do. And that was unbelievable training to then layer on to sort of like the strategic and analytical framework that I had for my first 10 years of consulting. Um, And then I came to EOS, my first marketing job. And here it's been, I've been on this learning curve journey for the past five years. I'm having a blast because I'm learning every day. Um, And I think that that has been, uh, that's what gives me like fuel and fire. But the notion of actually then taking a fresh, innovative, brave, creative lens to how you bring your story, applying analytical skills, strategic skills, layering on top, layering on top insight, know your audience, know what your problem solve, what you're trying to solve is a problem. And then on top of that, now add a creative spin and do it in a way that no one else can so that you cut through. That's been sort of like this, you know, the triple decker sandwich. Right? <laughs> right, exactly. So I have to ask you, how did you come to EOS? I mean, you were were you looking for a CMO job? Did it? Did you have a friend? How did it happen? So it actually came to me through executive search, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but I wasn't looking at CMO jobs. I was looking at merchandising jobs because I thought that I was going to go down that path. When this appeared, I thought, this is interesting. This is a brand that I've been following for a while that really was just sort of part of the cultural zeitgeist. It was a similar category. So I was in personal care before in mm-hmm. retail, and this is personal care as well. And I think that what was the most intriguing to me, if you haven't already guessed, is I'm somebody who likes to learn and stay curious. I, I, I find myself itching to do something new where I can kind of stretch my brain. And I always think about roles. The best roles are a give and a get. Um, you get to give of your expertise something that you have uniquely that no other candidate has, but you should be getting something too. And for me as an executive at this point in my career where I've been working for a long time, What I wanted to get was I wanted to learn something completely new that I'd never done before. 
And unfortunately, most companies will not just hand over a CMO title to somebody who's never done it before, but they were willing to do it because they really wanted the give that I had, which was strategic, commercial, and category-focused expertise. And they were willing to take a chance on me um, that I could figure out the marketing as well. It's a great story. The, the third area I want you to go to is this idea of you should market to people like friend to friend talking. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor for your company, of course. And I think you, you're executing that really well. But I love it as a metaphor for almost every piece yeah. of marketing we do. Uh, I remember when I, way back when I was at P&G, we said, Are we, if we're trying to build relationships, shouldn't we be measuring the output of our marketing in terms of the relationships we build? Yeah, and so what are the characteristics of a great relationship? So I think it's a beautiful way to have a mindset mm. about marketing. And so I'd like you to talk about that. How did you arrive to it? How do you execute it in your culture? How does it affect how you measure your work mm -hmm. or the quality of your work? I, by the way, I love that, um, that thinking about it more broadly, because what I would say is, you know, um, if I think about my time in retail and how important it was to get close to the customer, what, what we had to do actually literally was I literally worked in stores every three to four weeks. I put on an apron, went into stores and sold the product. And for anybody who's worked in any sort of service retail, that is the hardest job out there to sell. And the only way to do it is to make personal connections mm -hmm. with people. And the most effective people at doing it are making those personal connections. Now, the big question in marketing is like, how do you scale that? Yeah. You know, how do you take that so it's not a one-to-one, -one, but how do you bring it to um, the broader work mm -hmm. that you're bringing out to the marketplace? And I think that it's something that is become more apparent to me that I needed to take it from selling on a personal level to sort of speaking on a personal level through, uh, the frankly, the, the influence that um, thinking about Gen Z has had on me and thinking about this demographic that through the advent of like technology and, you know, digital disruption and the fact that they're so native to all of this, they speak to each other in colloquial and real and frank and honest terms, stranger to stranger across, you know, all of this media. And I think that um, brands that can really embrace that and be people in the conversation instead of a brand talking at people can really, you know, disproportionately cut through in all of sort of the, the chaos that exists out there. Do you have any brands you admire who do that well? Mm, I love what Duolingo is doing, I have to be honest, mm -hmm. because they're also, I mean, I'm, I'm going to bring up examples that probably are within my kind of like competitive set from an inspiration standpoint, sure. you know, approach like targeting younger consumers, like kind of social first. I love what they're doing because they just get it. Um, they really get who their audience is and they get how they can speak to their audience in a way that is welcome instead of intrusive. And that's what really great advertising should be. It does, right? It should be. It's not most of the time, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. but it should be. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about your CMO role, the first mm -hmm. one you've had. You've been in it five and a half years yeah, that's or right. so. How has the job changed from mm -hmm. when you took the leap and became a CMO to today? I think that I think that the job when I first came in, it was it was my first uh, CMO role, and I think that um, you know there had already been talk about like the this this role being 
one of the toughest out there. It's really hard to pin down. It means so many different things mm-hmm. in so many companies. And oftentimes when I'm meeting other CMOs, it's a, it doesn't stop at the M. There's always an and. There's an ampersand yeah. and another letter yes, attached to is. it. It's like it might be customer. It might be commercial. It might be growth. It might be revenue. Yeah. Um, experience. And I think that the the fact that the role itself is so stretchy is part of what makes it incredibly exciting, but it also is what makes it really scary. Because if you don't know what are the boundaries of the game you're playing, then how do you know how to succeed and how do you know when you're failing? So I think for any individual, really understanding what determines success in the organization f- for which you are mm-hmm. The um, you know the the voice of the brand and the, the the steward of the brand, I think is really incredibly important. But beyond that, I actually think that the role is is also the most exciting because because it's the most stretchy. You're thinking about not only um, external stakeholders, but you're thinking about internal stakeholders. You're thinking about culture again externally and organizationally within your own um, within your own company. You're thinking about commercial imperative, growth imperative. And so I find that the role really challenges me in a way that I've never I've never been this challenged before in my life and I love it. Is it a larger scope than you thought you would have as you came in? I certainly have been um, growing my scope. Yeah. I mean, I took on e-commerce a couple of years ago mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, as you rightly mentioned, as the as the role changes, I sort of find myself like picking up things, odds and ends here and there. But I think that the, the scope is, it's probably less that it's a larger scope and it's a little bit more that I'm starting to learn how to be, I, I've been learning along the way how to be effective in it and how to be the kind of leader that I want to be to really fulfill sort of all of the ways that I can be a good CMO for the organization. How did you align your CEO with the work that you felt needed to be done? Because I think this is an issue. Mm. Often the CEO and the CMO are not on the same page. That's why turnover at CMO is lower than we'd all like to see. There are lots of exceptions, but it's lower than we'd like to see the average. But it sounds like you got a clear idea of where you can add value to this company and organization. And your CEO is probably very supportive of that. Maybe you co-created it with the CEO. So could you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, for for me, because I oversee both the marketing side and the product side, I find that I um, I have some portion of what I'm, you know, you know, sort of talking about to the organization being a very direct impact on commercial, impact on top line, measurable thing, which is I make product, it sells. And that's how we make money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I do find that that oftentimes gives me quite a lot of credibility across the entire scope of what I do. Um, I know that not every CMO has that that mandate, and so it's not exactly the same thing. But I do think that as CMOs, you know, if you are getting pushed to, you know, to kind of like to for on the credibility front or or just sort of like how you step up, I think. Really being a business partner to the C-suite and showing up as somebody who cares about the business fundamentals, the business health, and letting the investment in the brand sort of be part of how you drive business health versus Mm -hmm. being purely about the brand, the long-term brand, I think is just helpful because you're just at least speaking to your audience in a way that they want to be spoken to. And I think that just flipping that narrative a little bit and and the priority really helps for credibility because you are, at the end of the day, a member of the C-suite before you are the marketing member of the C-suite. And that's really the way that the priority should come. So five and a half years in, where are you you now personally focused? Where are you spending most Mm -hmm. of your time? So, you know, I'm, I'm always spending time, which is why I love marketing, thinking about what's next in the landscape of marketing. So it, it's, it's part of what I personally love about my role is that because the landscape's always changing, there's always something to learn. Right now, I'm kind of fascinated about, you've probably heard this a lot, 
applications of AI and yeah. what that's going to mean for the future. But beyond that, um, for me, like truly at a personal level, I've thought a lot about and I've been trying to work a lot on how I can take what I've been so blessed to receive in this world, in this life through this industry and pay it forward. And I think that um, for me, what that means is getting more involved with the causes that are near and dear to my heart. For me, the two causes that are near and dear to my heart are diversity, equity, and inclusion and young talent um, and mentorship of young talent. And those two things are really how I sort of prioritize how I'm spending my extra time. And uh, by participating in various industry organizations or um, joining boards of organizations that I really believe in, I think that that's sort of my way of continuing my personal growth. You're also on the board of directors of a company, right? Yes, I am. How's that experience been? It's been incredible. It's such a fascinating thing to see and be part of a completely different business, different business it's model. A furniture business, right? Furniture yeah. business, a national retailer. And it, it's also incredibly helpful for me to um, continue to learn about what's happening out there more broadly in the world. Because no matter whether or not it's a, a similar industry or not, I think always thinking about what's happening um, across like macroeconomic conditions is just helpful. It's also helpful to understand sort of what's happening organizationally and how how they're dealing with certain things mm -hmm. and how I can bring some of that into my day job and vice versa. But it is a very different role. Um, sitting at the board level is a very different perspective because you 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 need to be sort of, you know, fingers out from the day-to-day -day of the organization. So I think a lot about how I can add value. I'd like to reflect on your career path for a bit. It's an unusual one. You've mm -hmm. already referred to that for a CMO. But you started, you went from Philadelphia, as opposed to MIT, for, for, for your degree, and you received an architecture degree. Yes. What were you thinking back then? I don't know what yeah, I was thinking. Right. <laughs> was it, did you like the field, or did you think you it. wanted to build a career in that, or... I, I, um, okay, so I don't know what, um, 17 year old researching colleges decides they're only going to apply to architecture schools. I, I don't know but what was, I, I think I, I've said this once before and I actually think this is true. I think I just had a crush on, um, Mr. Brady, who was an architect on the Brady Bunch. And I think <laughs> I wanted to, to be an architect. <laughs> and I think I just decided I wanted to be an architect, but you know, and then beyond that, I, I grew up, um, as somebody who absolutely loved math and who absolutely loved art. And I kind of, you know, in, in, my, in my young kind of like teenage brain, it made sense that architecture was sort of the marriage of art and math. What's fascinating is like now it's like many decades later, and I think marketing is the perfect marriage of art and yeah, math, it, um, you know, or, or like you know, well. soul and science and art and whatever, however you want to think about it. But, but so I, I ended up at MIT because they actually have the, um, the oldest and most esteemed undergraduate program in architecture. And I did do a number of internships. I actually worked in architecture firms throughout all of my summers and then ended up doing even um, post-undergrad. I did a Fulbright fellowship on architectural history and theory in Korea. So I moved to Korea for a oh, year wow. and did a fellowship, research fellowship there with the university um, and then came back and started my career. Oh, fantastic. Is it a, still an interest of yours? I mean, is it a bit it of is. a side hustle? It is as much as as much time as I have for side hustles, but it's yeah. obviously I'm I'm more of a, um, a spectator in this um, in this now. So right. whenever we go to travel, I love seeing yeah. beautiful buildings. My my family and I we just went to Korea not too long ago, and the amount of unbelievable explosion of fabulous architecture in Seoul is is really inspiring. 
How about your home? Did you design your home? I Did wish. You, you were, okay. I wish. I live in New if York you, City. <laughs> oh, if you could design your home, what kind of home would you design? I, I'm a really big fan of um, of mid-century modern. I, I really love all the architects from that era. And so that would probably, prob- it would be more modern than that, but it would probably have elements of that. We just, my wife and I just had dinner with a couple who, or I, I, the husband of the couple grew up in a Frank Lloyd Wright home. Oh my goodness. And that's a trip because yeah. you become sort of a tourist attraction in your home. No kidding. So, and he was, he had the opportunity to buy it when his parents passed away and he decided not to because mm. he did want to live with that sort of responsibility. Oof. I know. You Oof. think it'd be very romantic, but when it comes down to it, a lot of maintenance. Yeah, I would imagine so. And then it has to sort of be open because people want to see it. Is it a landmark? I think it is. Yeah. 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 I think it is. You probably can't even touch it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so then you went, got your MBA mm-hmm. at Wharton, and then you started this career in consulting. I and, did. And you went to several uh, fashion places. So, what, what attracted you to that career path? Yeah. You left consulting, went into fashion, and you ended up at EOS. What, what, was, your, what was your motivation? So, you know, I've always been really fascinated by consumer businesses. And I didn't even really reflect on this until later in life. But like my parents as sort of, um, you know, immigrants when they first came to this country, they were um, street merchants. And then eventually they worked their way up. They saved enough to buy a store. And I worked at the store every summer and every weekend. And I never really thought about that as being sort of my Mm -hmm. first entree into retail. But now I actually realize that maybe all along I've just been sort of my the arc of my journey has been heading that way because I I've just I'm fascinated by retail and consumer and um, sort of like interacting with people one on one. And so, uh, you know, even though I was in consulting, actually, a lot of the work that I was doing was with fashion, retail and consumer clients. That was the work that I loved the most. Mm -hmm. And so when the opportunity came to be doing it like all the time instead of project by project, I just jumped on the opportunity. Of all the locations you've lived, what is your favorite? Personally? Yeah. Oof, I, I would say um, right now I live in Brooklyn and I love Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, before my current apartment, I lived in Dumbo. I don't know if you know the area yeah. in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, but mm-hmm. it was before all a lot of the um, construction started more re- in more recent years. It was like sort of a quiet enclave by the water mm-hmm. and my children were young. And so I just have such fond rose-colored memories of um, living in Dumbo um, years ago with my young children. That's sweet. Okay, let's move to the creator brief. And we're in Cannes, so this is going to be sort of focused on creativity, of course. How do you demonstrate to everyone you work with that you value creativity? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like searching my soul right now for the answer. I, you know... I, d- I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you a few examples of sort of the way that I would think about things or talk about things. I, well, I think number one, if you know anything about the work that we've done, you probably already know that we're willing to kind of go there. Yep. So we're probably already bringing in people who are interested in working, um, whether it's on my team or outside partners, with um, with someone who's who has a little more appetite for creativity. But beyond that, I I often do if I feel like um, the the teams need a nudge, I will ask them to bring me work that will scare me a little because there's it's, a signal. It's easy to bring something back. It's really, really hard to take something that's too safe and push it out. Um, so I would much rather see the extent to how far we can go and then figure out what's the right, where do we want to land ultimately, um, than to have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. How do you know your organization's moving forward on creativity? What to, what to you are the measures or the signs or the characteristics or the signals? 
Hmm. I think that um, creativity for the sake of creativity might be the same as art for the sake of art. And I don't think that creativity in and of itself is the end goal, That which is why I like thinking about things like effectiveness, creative effectiveness. And we've done very well um, in terms of um, receiving many honors and accolades yes, along mm-hmm. along those lines. And I think that that um, tells you that you're leveraging creativity to solve a problem. And I think that's the necessary kind of appendage onto the word creativity mm-hmm. as a marketer versus, you know, if, if, I, if I were a performance artist, I could do whatever I wanted. But as a marketer, I really need to deliver impact. How do you keep yourself creative? Ooh, I, I do try to absorb as much as possible that would be similar to what my audience is absorbing. Um, and if that means I have to watch a lot of, you know, young adult television, mm-hmm. then that's what I do. If it means I have to spend hours and hours on social media, that's what I do. If it means that, you know, whatever it takes, I, I sort of try to keep myself in the mindset of my end audience, which is, you know, has been something that I've kind of always done throughout my career, no matter what my job has been. But it sure is more fun when you market to Gen Z. Yeah. Do you feel creativity can be learned, taught, coached? I do. I do. I think it's a muscle. Mm -hmm. Do I think that everyone can be the same level of creative? Maybe not. But I think that it is a muscle. And I think that maybe the lesson there is that as leaders, we need to be better at figuring out how to get people to exercise that muscle so they can learn as much what what the bound, like how how far can they go? Um, And that's our responsibility as Mm -hmm. leaders. Yeah. How do you, any any thoughts, any tips, anything that's worked for you in teaching creativity? We like to get out into the world as a team. And so we spend time actually um, a couple of times a year um, out. Like we take our whole team and we go do things that have nothing to do with our business. We go to museums. We go to the slime factory. Mm-hmm. We go to uh, stores that have no products related to anything that we sell. Um, we go to cultural experiences and we just use that opportunity to see if we can spot the connective tissue across everything that's happening. Fernando Machado does that too. Mm. You know, our famous marketer from Burger King and Activision yeah, and, yeah. And, and Unilever and others. So it's a, it's a good thing to do. It's so important On so to many levels. Yeah. On yeah. so many levels. First brand that you remember as a young girl in Philadelphia triggering your creativity. Oh, triggering my creativity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the, that's the ad. I think it would probably be Reebok because I wanted those Reebok aerobic sneakers so <laughs> badly. And I wanted to style them just the way I saw on MTV so badly. And watch the Brady Bunch with those sneakers watch on. the Brady Bunch. <laughs> you all know how old I am now. <laughs> so the most creative person you've ever worked with. Mm. I would say the most creative person I've ever worked with would be probably some some of the creative folks that worked at uh, Bath and Body Works with mm-hmm. me. And I think that the um, if if I'm taking my team out a couple of times a year, when I was there, we were going out. I, I think we we went around the world I, six to ten times a year. Wow! And this immersion, this this sort of constantly fueling the creative engine. Um, was a huge priority in the organization. And and to be honest, I feel like I only take a drop of that and bring that to my team just out of necessity and prioritization. But it really fueled an unbelievably creative environment. You work with one of the best, most trendy agencies in the world now, mm-hmm. Mischief at No Fixed Address. Yeah. What about that partnership works so well? 
what what's going well? What, what how did you build it? Yeah. What, what are the, some of the challenges? So when we first met with them, they had no portfolio of work to show because they were new. They were brand new. Um, and we were looking for something. Like I said, my first brief to them was, "I want you to scare me." Mm-hmm. And I said, "You know, this is a shot. We're just we're gonna we're gonna date a little while. And during this dating process, I want you to show me what you can do. So don't hold back." And they really brought it. I mean, the amount of creative horsepower, but not even just creative for creativity's sake, because we just said it has to be creative Mm -hmm. and impactful, creative and effective. The amount of creative horsepower that exists within that agency and the fact that I trust them and they trust me is a huge enabler to having the most fruitful partnership. Um, so, So I have to trust that sometimes they know what they're talking about and go with it. And I have to be the person who um, puts my neck on the line for some of that. And they have to trust that sometimes when I say we can't go there and we can't do that, that it's for a real reason that is a business-driven reason. And through that process, I think we've really developed a strong um, you know, back and forth process that has led to some really great work. So you didn't pitch it. You said, let's go yep. on a date and see how it works. We went on a date. It's a nice model. And we stopped dating. Like we just, I'm meaning like we just kept dating. Yeah. And somehow we found ourselves in this long-term serious relationship. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice alternate model because, you know, a pitch, yeah. it just takes so much No, and energy. it was during COVID. Yeah. And during COVID, my my whole approach to COVID was we were laying low. Our budgets were sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, pretty tight. Sure. And I took that opportunity to start, you know, seeing, poking my head around to see what it, what's out there. Um, and that led to this partnership. Most creative initiative you've ever been associated with? It would definitely have to be the lesser effing pooch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I think it's it's because it's not only bold and brave creative, but I think that the speed with which we acted, I think that the the complete like no hesitation, no holds barred kind of approach to the whole thing, it really just builds on the creativity and and really that that work will always be near and dear to my heart as some of the the, the thing that I'm the most proud of. What did you learn about creativity from your parents? Mm. I think that from my parents, um, I I would not necessarily say that I learned about creativity directly. But what I will say is that I think oftentimes creativity with resource constraint is the best kind of creativity. Because creativity, when you have unlimited resources, is sort of like, I mean, come on. can't mm-hmm. Everyone can do that. The most amazing thing about creativity is like when you're forced into a box and you still make more happen than you could possibly have expected with the resources that you're given. And that's like every immigrant story. So if I kind of use that as like a corollary to how I like to think about what my imperative is today Mm -hmm. as a marketer leading a smaller challenger brand, then then I think that 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 lesson really is something that I took from my parents. Have you told your mom about the Brand Genius Award? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I guess I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna show her the the big thing. It's like weighs like yeah. twenty pounds. I'll, you have I'll to carry that back. Yeah. No, no. They're gonna oh, send okay, it to the good. office, and so right. when I get it, I'll I'll share it with her. Make sure you send her a picture. <laughs> yeah. No. Congratulations thank on you. that and everything. Oh, thank you. I mean, your career is inspiring. The work you're doing is inspiring. The awards you've gotten set a great tone for the industry. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for doing what you do. And welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you so much. This was like really an honor to speak with you. And I'm, I'm so glad that we had the time to do it. That was my conversation with So Young Kang. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, creativity. Creativity is a muscle. It can be developed. Organizations can get better at creativity. So Young believes in this passionately. 
She thinks the leader's role is to encourage our teams to exercise that muscle. She says to her teams, bring me work that scares me. That says a lot about where her standards are in creativity. Second takeaway, and this one we haven't heard from other CMOs, she talked about pattern recognition as her superpower and the importance of observation and curiosity. Soyoung is very good at looking at things, how they're happening, adding some structure to the chaos in which we all live. She thinks this superpower helps her prepare herself for the future and helps her develop winning strategies. Third takeaway, inspiration can be very close to home. So look for inspiration in your family, in your friends. It's there. We just need to be looking for it. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.